The Ridiculous Nicholas podcast is brought to you by Pizza 911 of Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, their website is pizza911nh.com and their phone number is 603-625-2201. They have awesome pizza, calzones, subs, you name it, fried fare, sandwiches. Um, and they provide us with all our food on Sundays when we record the Ridiculous Nicholas podcast. So give them a call. Let them know that you heard about them on our podcast, and they will give you a free order of breadsticks. Again, it's 603-625-2201. And we are also brought to you by Team Link of Hookset, New Hampshire. Uh, their website is teamlinkhooksetnh.com. A great place to train Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, mixed martial arts, boxing, kickboxing, karate, uh, whatever it is you're looking to study. Uh, they have a great instructors over there. I've been training there for four years. Um, you can check them out at teamlinkhooksatnh.com, and you can also call them at 603-641-3444. Uh, ask for Ed Carr. Let them know you heard about them on the podcast. They will give you a free T-shirt and 30 days of free lessons. Hello. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Ridiculous Nicholas podcast number 12. I think it's number 12. Wow. Look at us go. And uh, I'm here with my all-time co-host, Miss Lisa Geyer. Good evening. And we're welcoming my very dear friend, uh, Monster Mike Welch. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. So so glad that this finally worked out. I am too. too. I'm very excited to see you. It's, uh, you know, whenever we see each other, we go, man, we got to get together. And Right, yeah. I mean, you know, you've been one of my closest friends for what? It's got it's, it's going on... No, ten years it's been now. Ten years, yeah. You know, like and uh, and we've been totally useless. I think we've seen each other outside of gigs what five times in that I ten years. No, it's so silly. Once, we, once every couple of years. It's I the know. way that it rolls, though, because yeah, we talk about this a lot. Being musicians, that as artists we connect like on this weird level. So it like, even though you don't spend a lot of time together, you're like ha ah, with right. each other. It's really weird. We talk about that. This podcast kind of came about for us because I was like. Well, at least we get to spend some time together. Yeah, hang that's out and the, chat. Yeah, definitely. That's yeah. the that's one of the best things for me with with Lisa is that we get to hang out and just see each other because we were doing the same thing. Yep. Right. Lisa and I would do the same thing. We go, we should have you over, and we go, yeah, we should have you over. You should have us over, and we can let's go over, and we'll be over, and you'll come over, and they'll go over, and we'll be over there. Right. We're here, we'll be there, <laughs> there, there. Two here, years later. Two, yeah, right. Two years later, we're going. Hey, what? Deja vu. <laughs> yeah. View. Oh, sure. Why view. Not? Deja. <laughs> View it. Yeah. 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 It's like a viewfinder. I'll, 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 I'll allow it. All right. <laughs> it's allowed. Yeah, it's what always happens. Yeah. It's a bushism. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I went... Re- remember, I, remember when we thought that guy was the worst? Yeah. I went nuclear. Nu- nuclear. Yeah. Remember when we thought getting some words wrong and you know, going into war under false pretenses was the worst? Well, he's still the worst because this dude isn't in power yet. Yeah, so there's, there's, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how much I want to get into this because, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, uh, 
I know you do your best to stay out of I political do my best to stay out of o- online stuff, and that's smart yeah, because no, you don't want to ostracize any of I've your. Noticed, I've noticed you starting to engage in a very I, it's crazy way. It gets crazy quick, and and it's just like I don't, I, you know. You know, I'm not interested in debate or discussion, really. Yeah. yeah. I just don't want to deal with people. Like, the unfollow face button on Facebook. Oh, my God. It's my favorite thing is, in the whole is world. It's my favorite thing in the world. And I'm It's really, the best thing ever. I'm deeply sorry to anyone who's Facebook friends with me. Don't and, be sorry. Uh, you know, I'm They sure don't know. People, yeah, okay. Don't be sorry because they I don't know. I said anything. I have very close friends of mine. Very close oh, friends. That I have put on the unfollow because I can't deal with their silly nonsense that they're putting up on. Right. But you're smart in staying out of it. I can't abide stupidity and my I fume inside too much, and right. it ca- has to come out. I have to go look. And you can't fucking think this way. And I this the best there's uh, the best meme on Facebook is there's a meme of a red circle, and it says uh uh. It says people that have, it says, uh, people whose minds that you've changed from oh, yeah, arguments yeah. on Facebook, people's, uh, people who have changed your mind on Facebook, and then the amount of people with both parties left pissed off, and it's blue, green, and red. But it's just and then it's red all circle. red, right. The, the, <laughs> That's the, the pie chart. Right, the pie chart is the amount of people that both parties just leave pissed off and, and, after you know, political discussion on uh, Facebook. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, it's also, I mean, yes, there's the sort of, and I don't want to overstate this and sound pretentious, but yes, there's this sort of public figure aspect of yeah. it. Um, but there's also just like, I can't deal. You know, like uh-huh. I'm, I, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I'm a dude who, you know, like I've got depression. I go bleak anyway. <laughs> yeah. You know, we all do. And, and yeah, I mean, it's well, not, and you're a very non confrontational person. <laughs> Well, you're, it, it, you're when, not. When I have been confrontational in the past, I've gotten into trouble. It's uh, usually been because something's up and I'm feeling out of control. Yeah. Uh, you know? Yeah. And one of the things that I have, and this is something, uh, very much, this is when I turn into my mother. Um, <laughs> I, you know, my mom is the most wonderful person in the world, but she also is, verbally she's capable of verbally obliterating someone you know and finding the weakness and just you know and and, you know there have been times in the past where I have maybe said things I shouldn't have said (laughs) because in the moment I you know in the moment I think well this is really going to and all it does is leave me feeling you know like my face is flushed my arms are tense you know and I'm just like I don't want to be that dude I've got enough issues I don't want to be that dude I'm the same as you I don't engage in it at all and some people some people say to me oh so you you just just put your head in the sand you don't I go "It, it, it isn't that there are oh, no, there I, are people I'm, there are people I'm very uh, you know, I'm very aware but right just, yeah. right but there are people well, in this in this world that, that that's their passion and that's their thing and they go for it and they do it and they're in mm-hmm. it and it's all about that and that's what drives them for me my passion is music and artistry and so those things sometimes so take away from the music and artistry in me because it just gets me it gets me worked up in the wrong way right. you know what I mean yeah. it doesn't get me worked up in the artistry way so I uh, probably about 
I would say a good 10, maybe 15 years ago in my life, I really made this solid decision where I'm removing myself from it. I don't watch the news. I don't. Right. I stay I can, informed. I can, un- I can understand I that. I stay informed enough, like, through right. people I trust's opinions or right. whatever. And, and But... I feel that everybody has a job and a passion, and this it, this takes away from my passion. So I kind of stay removed from it. Right. I don't I don't go inside. And if the, people want to say I have my head in the sand, I don't care. Sure, I have my head right. in the sand because I know where it sits for me. Right. Yeah. And you know, I I think for me also, um, you know, when it comes to social media, um, those aren't the conversations I signed up to have with yeah. people. Yeah. Right. Those aren't the Your conversations yeah. that people signed up to have with me. Correct. Now, it's an interesting thing. I was talking to someone about this where, um, like, I can't type words like fans without using ironic scare quotes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's, you know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure we can go into, you know, my... The psyche of that. Well, yeah, the yeah. psyche of that and just sort of, you know, it, it was an interesting childhood. You know, mm-hmm. and, and everything mm-hmm. that that led to. Um, but, uh, you know, that's not, you know, that's not why I'm on there. And, you know, as far as like engaging in debate, like right now I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at a world where the two presidential candidates that are stirring up the most excitement are Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. And what does that say about the gaping wound in the middle of this country? Mm. You know, like there's no real debate between people who hold that level of opposing views. Right, right. That's so divergent. It's so divergent. (laughs) And those are the people stirring up excitement. Well, um, it's it's it, it's even weirder for me when it pours over into real life. From there, we ha- right. there's a there's a there's a, a, a music goer. You and I both know him in the Boston area who shares a very different political view than yes. I do. And he happened to be at a show that I ended up at the other day, and then he wanted to start this conversation about ISIS and the Middle East and and Syrian refugees. And I was just like, dude, I don't want to. I just came out to listen to fucking music, right? I don't want to engage in this conversation right, right now. Right. I was like, I got to go. I got to right. go stand over here. Right. I've, I've kind know? of always felt that that's part of us as artists, that you know, in that moment that we're kind of that, you just wanted to go listen to music, go see a band and just kind of escape from it for a little bit. Not right. run from it. Just have a moment of something else. So I don't, I've always felt that way too. That's always been part of my thing, that I try to keep all of that off of the stage. Yeah. That's, that's, admir- that's I admirable. Try. I try um, to. I try. You know, I'm, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, I mean, the other reason I, I, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's very, it's very clear that, you know, in in the Trump Sanders divide, I think it's pretty clear which side of the line I fall on. Right. Um, (laughs) and, you know, it feels like this isn't just a debate of, I mean, it isn't just a difference of politics. It feels like, you know, you know, like we're actually looking at people defending Japanese internment as a model of, you know, it's like that's not just a political difference. Yeah, that's that. And that's where I start getting where I can't keep my mouth shut, where I go, look. That's one of the reasons I disengage, because (laughs) I would, you know, there are people out there that I care about 
or, you know, I have non-specific warm feelings towards, or <laughs> I have to interact with, and I just, you know, if those are beliefs they hold, I don't want to know. know. Yeah. I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to narrow my world that much. Yeah. You know mm. what I mean? But it's really hard in this day and age. Yeah, it is. It's really You know, and tough. I think, I think, you know, what you're saying is just, you know, if you don't engage on that level, then that's not a thing you ever have to, that's right. You know, that's right. And, you you, you know, have to deal with the repercussions of people coming at you for being a head in the sand kind of person. And I, and I'm okay with it because right. I know that's not what I am. Right. And I know that I have the beliefs that I have because I know somebody else has their passion somewhere else. So, but it is really difficult. Yeah, I, it, I, I, artists, we're very opinionated. Yeah. We, we're very passionate about things. And, but for me, it really came down to, like you saying, once you do engage, you're left with this. And to me, it takes me a long time to shed this. Right. And then what is that doing for my creative flow? Right. Or, or, or my now I'm getting depressed and going right. into this thing. I'm just trying to stay here. Right. A little loose. Let's just do this right. a little bit. Let's not be doing this. <laughs> Other people can do that if it's their, like if it's your, their passion, like music is our passion. Right. It doesn't do this to them. Right. It excites them and it, and it, and it right. empowers them. Awesome. Let them go do it. You know, but the other thing, you know, I mean, the other thing, like your, your, uh, you know, the audio listeners can't see the, uh, yeah, the the big waves the big that waves, Lisa's right. making with her hands versus <laughs> the little ones. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing, and this is a thing I've had to c- confront over the years. Um, I've actually had quite a few discussions with Ron Earl about this. Um, you know, uh, that. You know, as someone with, you know, mental health issues and whatever, um, you know, that stuff informs who you are musically and that stuff informs how you express yourself, but it's unhelpful to be going through that while you're actually trying to perform. Yep. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a huge Beatles fan. Like I'm, I'm, uh. Uh, you know, a Beatles fan who happens to like other forms of music as well, one of which is, happens to be blues, which is the thing I'm actually good at. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, I'm, I remember the stories about how, uh, you know, they never took acid in the studio. They would write on acid, yeah, you know. Yeah. But, right. but, but the one time on Lennon it. took acid in the studio it was by mistake, and he totally started freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, you know, there's the moment where you're inspired by what you're inspired by, but then you actually have to go fucking do it. Yeah. And you have to be present in the moment to do it. You know, right. not off on your little trip whatever that is. Right. So, when can we do acid? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder that's what he got. Right, up. Right, he right. heard we're doing acid. What's that happening? Who's bringing it? Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> no, just full disclosure. I know that Mike Welch has never taken acid before. <laughs> right. No, I'm, and he doesn't do acid and doesn't. Uh, right. No, I mean, it, it, you know, I, you know, I had too many. You know, I've been hanging out in bars since I was eleven. By the time my friends at school started experimenting with anything, I had. Oh, you you seen all many, the nitwits? I had too many cautionary tales. <laughs> Well, and you had seen it firsthand. Yeah, you didn't even, you did, not even cautionary you tales, know, but you had your own cautionary tales. You got the watch guys. Yeah. But the, I uh, had that same experience being 12. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I had the same experience. I never did any drugs my whole life because I was like, I watched everybody else do it right. and go, that's just messy. Right. 
Yeah. But, you know, the interesting thing is, I think a lot of my friends in high school kept the fact that they smoked pot from me. Huh. Because they knew I just, I, they, they knew I'd get judgmental and awful and they didn't want to deal with that, I think is the reality. Yeah. <laughs> huh. I went through a stage like that for sure. Yeah. Because I got clean early. I mean, I, yeah. I used drugs early in my life and I got clean early in my life. Yeah, you've been clean as long as I've known you. I got, so, uh, and I assume. I stopped at age early. 12. I mean, I started at age 12 Jeez, and by, wow. seven, by 17 I stopped. You know, so it was only a five year span of my life, but my, I went completely bonkers in five years. You yeah. know, I mean, I was, you know, whatever. We won't get into the details of it, but I was gone. I was far gone. Right. So, uh, you know, I got, no, I, got I can't clean. imagine with, you know, a 12 year old's level of impulse control. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm looking at my 11 year old son who is yeah. awesome and I love him. I can't believe he's 11. Oh my God. It's been more than 10 years, dude. Yeah. No. I, oh, that's right. Cause I have a picture of you <laughs> holding him, him yeah. as a newborn. Yeah. Oh my God. That's one of the five times you've been at my house. <laughs> I've been there more than five. No, I, I know because I've picked you up before. Yes, and, I've, and I've stopped and dropped things off. But to like come by and hang out has probably only been about five times. <laughs> it's, it's 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 more than that, but it's it's yeah. funnier the lower yeah, that yeah. number is. <laughs> it's funnier and sadder at the same right. time. Well, the two things are pretty inextricably linked when yeah. you're in our line of work. Yep. So I had from seventeen on. You know, as I got clean, I you know I was definitely. You know, judgmental of the people around me that still used it because I felt like I had elevated myself to you know. Uh, I was holding myself to a higher standard, and right. that they should too, and they weren't, and so, right. uh, so I had that same kind of judgmental thing too. So right. where, you know, uh, my friends didn't look at me the same or treat me the same after, you know, the friends I got high with, anyways. Right. Yeah. You know, well, you didn't need to I had different friends. friends. I had different yeah. friends. I had a whole different, right. and they were all older than me because there was no seventeen-year-olds that were in going to NA meetings. Right. When I got clean, you know, right. there just weren't. They were all. No, you everybody I hung out with was, you know, you represented the younger end of that demographic. Right. Yeah. You know, you, usually if seventeen-year-olds so. are doing hard drugs and they stop, it's because they died. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and that's you know, I mean, the fact that you were able to, you know, get out of that, you know, um, you were able to get out of that at an age when. Which is when most people start spiraling out of control, really. Or you just got, get into it, really. Yeah, it, really it got so far out of control in five years. That's all I needed to see. And I fortunately, I got locked up and I got introduced to Narcotics Anonymous through, uh, uh they had, have this subcommittee called Hospitals and Institutions. They would bring meetings into places where people can't get out to meetings. Right. And so I got introduced to NA through that at 17 and, was able to hear, get yeah. a little clarity. You are, you know? wow, that's because I got everybody, so all my, you know, all my aunts and uncles, um, you know, not all of them, but, you know, on one, one particular side of my family, uh, all my aunts and uncles are, they're all drug addicts and they've all been in and out of jail their whole right. life and they've all been, you know, hooked on heroin and, you know, my mom was a junkie, my dad was an alcoholic. You know, I was destined to, right. to you, you, be in that spot, so. You have a lot of people historically contributing that gene to your, so, you know. Yeah, well, and I had, chromosomes. but I had that to look it's at too, and I had right. that to see. I could see that at 17 year old, 17 years old, I could see my 40 year old uncle going into prison for the fourth time Jeez. and going, alright. Right, there's, I don't want to do that. I'm yeah, not interested at 40 years old going into prison for the fourth time. There is, I'm all set. Like, I, you know, I'm not interested in, um, 
I'm not interested in uh, outing family members for things, but definitely when I was starting to hang around in bars as an 11, 12-year-old kid, I was sat down by a family member and given the talk of their experience having gotten into real trouble with drugs. And yep. so I knew I had that in my ancestral history. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it was a very, you know... Um, it was a very pointed, deliberate talk based on the fact that I was now, you know, exposed to... In that environment. Yeah, in, in that environment. And, you know, the people I was around, you know, I mean, could not have been more protective yeah. for whatever they were doing. Mm. You know, I mean, the, like, I was hanging around Matt Woodburn and Tim Garren and those mm. guys just well, guys are <laughs> took me in as a little brother. Yeah, yeah. And for whatever they were doing at the time, um, you know... I mean, they never let me around it. If anyone oh, else, yeah. good for them. If, any, if anyone else, you know, even made a comment about, you know, do you want to go out back and smoke? You know, I remember Matt looking at someone saying, "Dude, Mike's here." Yeah. You know, he's um, a good dude. I miss him. I miss he's, him so much. He's one of my favorite guitar players. He's such a beast, man. He's the first guy. So you know, going back into, uh, you know, Matt was so pivotal for me. Because Matt saw me, I used to take lessons at Cambridge Music mm-hmm. in Porter Square. There, I don't know if you ever went there. No. Uh, it, it was the best. Um, but I used to take lessons there, and I was just—I would also hang out there for seven hours at a time trying out guitars. <laughs> you know, and I'm like ten or eleven. I've been playing guitar for two or three years, um, and you know, I mean. For my age, I was pretty good. You know, I mean, this this story doesn't get to that point unless, for my age, I was pretty good. Yeah. Um, but uh, Matt came in, and at the time, he and Timmy were running the Johnny D's Jam. They had a band called the Renegades. It was um, uh, Matt and Tim were gu- guitar players and uh, traded off vocals. Paul Allstrand was playing sax. Um, you know. A uh, great piano player named Johnny Getches who moved out to San Francisco, um, and a drummer named Dan Stoll who was from upstate New York. Um, but those guys were badass. I mean, like, I don't know if you knew Tim back then. Like, pre, I didn't. I didn't know pre singer songwriter Tim. No, and I only I only know I only know post singer songwriter so, Tim. I only the fans know Tim's last name Tim Garren. Tim Garren, yeah. and he's a great. He has this he's, killer Americana band. He's that's amazing. I mean, they're just you know, it's like uh, JJ I mean, I Kale meets Exile yeah. on Main Street. Arizona. Yeah, meets meets <laughs> Tom Petty. Meets yeah. you know, I mean, and, it's really cool stuff. It's and you know, he's um, but at the time I at the time I first met him he was playing guitar like bb king oh shit you know yeah well i know he came from there but i never really saw him well, do he that he and i saw little glimpses of he it deliberately when... avoids it now yeah because huh. he doesn't you know i mean you, you know there are some guys who have a thing about the blues yeah you know like everyone plays blues yeah uh, yeah you know yeah. And he's like well i'm gonna do my own thing and um and you know god bless him his own thing's brilliant you know but uh, yeah. um but so so uh Matt was very, very gentle and very nice, and my my dad was there. He's like, "You should totally take Mike to this jam I run on Sundays at Johnny D's. It's um, you know, you know, I mean, it's it's a bar, but also like during the day, during like Sunday afternoons, it's kind of a restaurant too. They let kids in, huh. um, and 
then um, I didn't hear him play or anything, but a couple weeks later, my dad and I were out, like we would go to Cheapo Records and stuff, and like, cause my dad, my dad had a, a record collection that was one of the things that got me into music, but then when I started getting into music, and it was sort of the roots of a lot of the stuff he was into, he got really into that. So we'd go to record stores. Nice. Hang out. Cool. And we're, oh, that's a cool we're out on a, Very cool. We're out on a Sunday, and he's like, hey, you know, I think we'll go into Somerville. Maybe, you know, maybe we'll get, you know, maybe we'll get a bite to eat, and we go to Johnny D's. And, and, and my dad's sort of playing it coy. He's like, you know, I just thought that, you know, we might want to check this thing out. That that guy said, you know, you should come down and check it out. Um, and like two songs into the opening band set, I looked at him like, you need to call mom. We need to get my guitar here like now. That's great. <laughs> because watching Matt and Tim do it, like really do it in a way that... um in a way that was um you know cuz i'd only ever seen people play this music from a distance i was just going to say it was very in your face it's very in your it face it was very in your face that yeah, changes yeah. everything and um about what your perspective it, it does is and it changes and, everything you know i mean the people i'd actually seen play this before had been like i'd seen bb king once i saw um Great Woods in Mansfield had a blues festival that Ronnie Earl was the MC for, where Stevie Ray Vaughan was the headliner. Huh. Um, <laughs> I'd seen Clapton. I saw the Stones. You know, like because right. you know we would go as a family to these big to the shows. big events, right? But nothing um, small and up close like and, that. Right? And you know, to see, you know, um, I mean, back then, I mean, Matt always had some of the uh, Stevie Ray thing, but back then he played a gold top Les Paul. And he sounded like seventies Freddie King. You know, like his, you know, you want to talk about a guy who opened his mouth and his voice was huge yeah, and yeah, just, you know. Yeah, big voice. And, um, and it was like, oh, wow, people actually do this. And they got me up to play with them because Matt had seen me. I wasn't immediately thrown into the jam grinder. Um, and that was the first, I was 11 years old. That was the first time I played on stage. Um, and, yeah, no, Matt, uh, and, you know, I followed Matt around like you wouldn't believe. I used to go sit in with them when they played the Yard Rock. I used to, you know. I never it's got so to great. go to that place. That's one of the things that bummed me out. I never got yeah, to, man. never got to be a part of that. I got to be, I never got to be a part of that early Johnny D's jam. Yeah. You know, with the, you know, so it many It was a very different thing back went, then than when we were running it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you and I were running it, it turned into, you know, hokey, you know, Whatever a blues jam is, we're not, you know, I'm not right. trying well, to shit on anybody, but right. it's not, you know, it wasn't like, the, all the stories that I heard back in the day, you know, when it was Susan Tedeschi and, you right. know. Right, we all came up through it together. You all, yeah, you right. all came up through it together and there was this, you know, crazy pool of serious talent there all the time. Yeah, I mean, but having said that, a lot of those people when they showed up would sit in with the house band. You're right. You know, like, you know. I mean, I played sets with the jammers, but, uh, but you know. Well, we did that too going. when we hosted it. We didn't do it as much as I think we should have. We you know, if Tim showed up, if Tim showed up, we'd right. get him up. If Templeton showed up, if right. Cheryl Arena, you know, anybody, yeah. anybody, any of the, you know. Yeah. We'd get the, I think they'd get, we'd get them up with us, I think. Yeah. 
But yeah, no, I was I was so yeah, I was I was in such a weird place when we were running that jam, and then when you stopped, I mean, I was. How um, old are you then? I'm 36. Then how old are you? Oh, how old was I then? I mean, that was 10 years ago, right? Was it what? 10? It was it was right after Hurricane Katrina, because what happened was we did it for three years. And it was me and, uh, it was Mike and I and, uh, Brad, and Brad Helene. Helene. And then we had a revolving drummer. It was started out as, uh, Jason, Jason Corbier. Mm-hmm. And then I had John Hoyk for a little while. Yeah. And he then we had, uh, then we had, um, it didn't, there was, a, then there was a lot, there was just a lot of flipping and flopping. We right. had Medeiros or Anzalone or yeah. a lot of Anzalone different people did that came to it. Later on, uh, later on, Mark. Yeah, next to right. So that was the that was the last one for the last stretch of it that I did. It was right. was Texera, but it was right after Hurricane Katrina and the gas prices went like through the uh, roof. Oh, that's right. Uh, that's right. That's, uh, that's they went from one twenty five a gallon to four fifty. Yeah, right. right. Four dollars. Four dollars right. a gallon or whatever. And I was like, I was living in. I was still living another twenty miles north of here in Concord, New Hampshire. Right. Yeah. So I had to drive from Concord down to you know Somewhere. Somerville on Sunday, and it would cost me. You know, thirty bucks in gas, and right. we'd make seventy five. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then yeah. I'd eat, which was they gave us food, but I'd tip. Was, so there's yeah. another five bucks. Right. So so I'm making, I'm making forty bucks. You yeah. know, right. Forty bucks on a gig, and I, you know, when I look back on it now, I have regret. Yeah. I have regret uh, because Why? I love that band so much. Yeah. Um, you know. What's the regret? I, well, I left. Yeah, okay, I left. Okay. I, I wasn't left. clear on the, what you oh, were okay, regretting. Yeah, yeah. The regret yeah. was the regret was I left because the gas prices were so high. Because you were thinking of it as business, you weren't thinking about it with your right. Heart, I wasn't right. thinking about it music which, in your heart, which right. was but, which was the whole reason that I put it together because the Johnny D's people approached me and said, wow, "We great. want you to come host this jam." Yeah, and I said, "Look, I'll I'd love to come do it." But you have to give me a little bit of a budget, and I can I have to put a band together that is going to yeah. be just killer. Has right. to be. And I, 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 I said it has to be all my first choice people. If it hadn't been, and it was all my first choice if it, people. If it hadn't been you, <laughs> like I mean, I, I basically was never going to go to that jam again right. because so much of my, so much of my early identity was wrapped up in that. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't want to come back. Yeah, right. You know, and. You know, so this is uh, you're gathering two different instances. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure if we were clear about it because we because we we know the the history of it, but I wasn't sure. I'm in the middle here keeping the story so everybody understands. I I got it. Don't worry, I got it. So I went to the jam as a jammer, sort of, and then featured guest Mm -hmm. um, for like two years, and then I started playing professionally um, because of the House of Blues thing. Yeah, Which yeah. is such a, you know, it's such a insane, it's such an insane thing. What is the House of Blues thing you're referring to? So, the House of Blues um, opened up in 1992. The first? The first, the first one. one. It right, was the small there. club in Cambridge. Yeah, I played there, yeah. Um, and that was very much, the guy who uh, started it was Isaac Tigret, who was right. the guy who started the Hard Rock Cafe. And he had this romantic notion that the first House of Blues, it was always intended to be a chain of gigantic warehouses with folk art on the walls that had, you know, some blues, but mostly non-blues. Um, uh, but his sort of romantic notion was that, um, 
you know, right across the street from where Club 47 was and Passim is now, that he was going to open this sort of bohemian little blues club. Um, hmm. And he did. Um, and they were going to have this big opening show. It was November of 1992. Um, and, uh, and they were going, you know, they sort of put the word out that they wanted someone local and unknown to represent it. And, you know, if word gets out that there's a 12 year old kid who's out there tearing shit up. Yep. Um, I think they heard that and said, that, that sounds like a thing. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so at the Johnny D's Jam, uh, the woman who was booking this show approached my mom. And my mom is the least starstruck person you're ever going to meet in your life. Um, you know, um, I love your mom. Oh, my God. I, you know, so, so they start, she starts giving my mom this whole, uh, spiel about, you know, it's going to be this all-star event and, you know, uh, Dan Aykroyd's one of the investors. It's going to be the Blues Brothers band and we've got so and so and so and so and so and so coming. And, and, um, you know, I need you to call us. And my mom looks at her and goes, if this is for real, you'll call us. <laughs> like what? We're not gonna, you know. That's this sounds so opposite this of sounds, the stage moms out there now. She is, she is it's not so great. a stage mom. That's so and my great. my parents ended up managing my career. My mom did the actual management, yes. and my dad did a lot of the road management. Although sometimes my mom would go out too, um, because I couldn't get into bars yeah. on the level I needed to get into bars to have a professional career. Right? You know, there's only so much sneaking in you can do if it then becomes something you're advertising. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, so the, uh, yeah, my mom had her, my parents had their rules that if I broke them, they would pull the plug. That's great. And the rules were, you know, go to school every goddamn day. You know, I missed less school for a full-time music career than most kids miss for head colds. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, you know, cause every time there, every time there was a long weekend or a vacation, we'd just pile in a van and go. Right. Um, and I didn't drink or do drugs, which, you know, I... That was one of the rules. Yeah, that was definitely one of the rules. Yeah. Um, I had grades and or SA, well, grades and SAT scores enough to get into any college I wanted. Wow. As it happened, the SAT scores were better than the grades, but, uh, but the grades were still adequate. Um, and that I didn't become a total self-important douche, you know. Like, my mom, so reality-based, you know, I mean, one of her mantras was, Mike, try really hard not to be an asshole. So great. And, <laughs> and you know, it's, it's, Good one, advice. Of the, so it's great. one of the things that's kept, that's kept me, you know, like, I look at, you know, because there was a whole wave, there's a whole infestation of us, you know, younger blues-based guitar players who all came around around the same time. Yeah, yeah. You know, um... You know, like, I think Joe Bonamassa and Derek Trucks were a little earlier, but, and then, um, I was a little earlier than Kenny Wayne Shepard and Johnny Lang, mm-hmm. and then Sean Costello was a little bit after that, um, you know, uh, and I look at the career paths some of the other people involved took, and I just think, I'd be completely insane if I'd tried to, if I'd tried to go down that path without... And, and the message had been, that's what's important. Yeah. You know, um, 
from your parents. Just to not be a douchebag. <laughs> well, and, and I'm, it, it, not even the not be a douchebag, but the, the being a complete human being was yeah. more important than being a successful a musician. Yeah, yeah. And, and to them, more important than being a successful musician. I probably read it as, well, it's more important than being a star. Yeah. Uh, my mom says she knew I was going to be okay uh, when at some point the House of Blues management called her up and said, you know, hey, what would you say to having Mike like sit in for a couple songs with Aerosmith when they played The Garden? And she sort of relayed that to me. She's like, I don't know what I'll say. And I was like, my response was, why? Mm-hmm. You know, not because, not because, you know. it was Aerosmith in the garden. But, but my response was, why? Like right. they, you know, I'm not going to fit in with what they do. That's right. You know, like that doesn't make sense to me at all. Right. You know, um. That's great. You know, and, and she's like, okay, Mike's probably going to be okay about, yeah. it. you know, it's, yeah. pro- it's not, you know, um. That's, that's heavy. Pretty that's, cr- that's pretty, that's pretty that's incredible pretty great for parenting. you. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that says a lot about you and says a lot yeah. about how your parents brought you up because. Yeah. How old are your parents? Let me ask. The, how, we, how old were you yeah. at that point? 13. 13. So how old were your, are your parents now, per se? My parents, my mom is 70. Right. So, see, she's 70 and my dad is, um, 60. Seven? Yeah, so, still, still the tip of that generation that we talk about. Like my parents, mm-hmm. I was brought up the same way too. Very yeah. young, out playing, and my parents were like, "You're not special. You're a little different. That's right. for sure. Right? That's really for sure. <laughs> You're not special. We don't." Right. And it was that was just how I was brought up. That it's not about that. It's about you know, take pride in what you do, do right. it the best you can do, make all the right decisions, but. You're not special. I came from my father's family was a talented family that performed, so I yeah. came from it. So they were all like, "We don't." Right. See, I like didn't you. have. I didn't have that. Right. But I. Yeah. But I'm saying that your parents, parents nowadays, everything is like eh, they're so perfect, and it's just ugh, there's no foundation. Well, but for, what a lovely, for, what a lovely me, parenting. There was experience. a thing, you know, and this is, yeah, this is probably more than I've ever publicly talked about my mental health. Um, one of the things that. Um, came up in interviews and still does to this day. I just did an interview for Blues Music Magazine, you know, and it's still the same questions, you know, how does a white kid from suburbia? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I would have my sort of flippant answers to that. Not even flippant, but they, it, uh, you know, well, you know, I heard it and I fell in love with it. It made sense to me because I was kind of a weird kid. Because that sounds a lot better than, well... The first time I went into therapy for depression and suicidal ideation, I was five. Yeah. You know? So my parents, it wasn't that, you know, you're not special. It was, you are special. You're kind of a weird kid and you need to function in society. Yeah. 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 You know? Um, my parents said special, different yeah, than their there, words. There's, there's, there's different. There's, you're a weirdo. You're different. Right. And, and you, I think you're that's, not special. I think that's what it is. It's, yeah, you're a weirdo. It's, it, it's um, the rules still apply. Yeah, exactly. You know? Um, that must have been tough for them, though. Uh, it was, ooh, you're a parent. Oh, that must have been tough for oh, them. Oh, God, yeah. And what a right choice. What yeah. a right decision for you, for them to make that tough choice for you. Yeah. And, you know, the... Um, you know, it's one of the reasons, you know, I, I look at, um, 
I look at my life now, I look at, you know, I mean, I don't think you've met Jeanette, Lisa, maybe you have, but and she Mike's never really wife. came up to whips or no, anything. I don't, my wife. So. I don't think I have. Um, but Nick knows her really well. And like, you know, um, she's fucking amazing, mm-hmm. you know, great. and, and, you know, she I, reminds me of your mother and her stoicism. Oh, see, that's great. In some ways, <laughs> you know? she's much. Uh, just in her frankness and her yeah. kind of, uh, I, could, I think her and your mother are both very frank people. They are. They don't, they don't mince words. <laughs> they don't, they don't cut corners. They say what they mean to say. Jeanette's, um, Jeanette's got a, um, And it's, you know, she, she runs into this a lot. It's hard to describe Jeanette's worldview without making her seem naive sometimes <laughs> because she is genuinely positive. <laughs> ah, what are those? Who are those you know, people? <laughs> and, and, you know, to describe someone with genuine optimism, um, who is also that kind of frank and also brilliant and also totally aware, yeah, yeah. like, mm-hmm. you know, that's, mm-hmm. um, but, but, you know, I look at my life and I look at my son and I look at, you know, the other thing, you know, going back to that story about Aerosmith, you know, um, one of the things about me is that when I was 13, I wanted to be the guitar player in Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones, so you know, and that's where I ended up, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> which is, uh, you know, I think if I had followed through that kind of weird initial rush of prodigy fame, you know, then I would be out of my goddamn mind now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I would be able to interact with people on the level I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's taken, it's taken a long time to, um, it's taken a long time, you know, um, you know, it was a tough transition there for a few years. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I, I said to Nick before we started recording was that I didn't necessarily want to dwell on, you know, clubs closing and yeah. how tough, the, you know, the two, well, he, the he, two he episodes. Listened, he listened to, to I listened episode. to the Karen episode yeah. and I, I listened to a bit of the Nick Moss episode. And we both were talking about which the, is how sad. Which it's such, it's right. such an obvious thing and I'm, I'm trying not to talk about yeah. that. Yeah, no, that's yeah, the, it's, it's the first obvious. rule of blues clubs is you don't talk about blues clubs. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you're so brilliant. The, uh, uh, um, but the reason I talk about it is because most people out, we talk about it because we don't have to talk about it as much because we know it's just an, it, we know it's an eight because it's what we're doing. It's right. our world. Yeah. People outside of it, They're even fans, right. even right. people that are, would listen to this podcast, right. aren't as acutely aware of it. And so that's why I, you know, uh, you know, I, 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 I like to think I, more than just trying to lament about it, I'm trying to I'm trying to encourage people to get out there and, and support. So I, I, I also, I, mean, I also have to say, in both the episodes I listened to, um, at no point does it come off as "woe is me." Right. It's you know, it it feels like very honest conversation, and it's not you know. Uh, and it was an interesting conversation. Oh, yeah. um, I think the point of it for both me and Nick is, you know, keep live music alive. Right. That's where we're at. You know, right. how, how important it. it is. Put- like when you were just describing that moment for you at Johnny D's, where it was kind of the first time for you that it was right there in front oh, of you. Oh, yeah. No, there's like no there, question Like that, that went right in my head at, at the thing that we strive to do and that I'm really striving to do being a teacher, et cetera, mm-hmm. that 
I need to keep live music alive. It's, mm-hmm. it's the learning curve. And it's that moment that you had that was like, <gasps> tell mom to bring my guitar. Like it was That's that great. moment, right? <laughs> but okay, so here's the thing that worries me and the path I don't want to go down too far because it yeah. feels really bleak to me. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I feel like everyone I know under the age of 45-ish, let's say, who heard this music and fell in love with it. And I'm talking about the blues specifically, but also, you know, it also applies, especially as people get younger, to sort of blues-based rock, classic rock, any of that stuff. Um, but with the blues, everyone I know under a certain age who fell in love with this music started playing it. Mm. They didn't start going out to clubs. Mm-hmm. They didn't start buying records. I mean, apart from, you know, they didn't start, you know, the demographic of the players got substantially younger. You know, and to the point where people roughly my age, you know, between my age and Nick's age, who maybe didn't start out, you know, doing the full on Bobby Fisher circuit the way I did or the way Kenny Wayne Shepard did or whatever. Um, you know, you know, once you get to Nick Curran and Kirk Fletcher and Kid Anderson and, uh, you know, um, well, you know, there, there are other names, but it feels like there's a massive influx of, you know, players between the age of 25 and 45, you know, over the past few years. Mm. But the audience is still the same. Mm. Right. So, <laughs> right. like, you know, the, my, my concern is not, is this music going to stay alive for pe- because people aren't playing it? I think people are going to be playing it, but if a blues band falls in the forest and there's no one around to hear it, <laughs> does it still make a goddamn sound? You know what I mean? <laughs> and 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 the question is, you know... Like, is it, you know, does it become, like, um, Civil War reenactment? That's a bad analogy with some oh. implications. Um, let's we'll see. edit that. Uh, yeah, uh, that is a bad analogy. Um, but, uh, you we're know. Gonna, we're going to superimpose Magic the Gathering over the top of your... <laughs> your mouth will be saying Civil War reenactment, right. but, the, but the overdub will go, Magic the Gathering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I picked Magic the Gathering, but put away your D twenty nerd up. But but you know what I mean. It's it's so you know I feel like there are a lot of people who heard this music and fell in love with it, but they all started playing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, um, and so it, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see where that goes. But. Um, it's still happening. I have a, I have a jam that I hold. It's not necessarily a blues jam, but I have great musicians in the jam mm-hmm. band. And this little boy started coming at 12 years old who is really amazing. Yeah. Just blues. He just kills awesome. the blues. That's great to hear. It's so great to hear. And when That's he showed up, he's just this little kid. And I, yeah, I'm going to play some blues. I'm like, all right, we'll sure. play some blues. Sure. What's going to, what's going to happen? And the, the question you know, is in 20 years, who's where, he going to be playing that's for? That's right. Who is who's he his for? audience? That's where right. I was going. In 20 years. Who oh, is right. his audience is where <laughs> I was just going. It's just wonderful to see. And you go, yeah. And it's, and, that and was, he's amazing. That, that but, was an issue for me. And I was insecure all through. Oh, shit, I'm still insecure, but yeah. But you were came you came in right at the kind uh-huh. of tail end of that eighty, you know, right when they had that mm-hmm. big Yo, push so of I came, you know Stevie Ray Vaughan. I came into and, an incredibly healthy and, blues scene, right? Yeah, you and did. the Thunderbirds so, and Robert Cray. So going back to my mental health, um, <laughs> I had to deal like, and it's right around the time we were doing the Blues Jam, and a few years before that, where I had to deal with I was no longer a prodigy, mm-hmm. and um. You know, I, you know, the level of reaction I could get 
just based on getting on stage with a guitar became very different. Yeah. And the right because you used to just walk on stage and people would start going oh right now you had to earn it right that's right <laughs> but there were also fewer people there from whom to earn it right you know um and and then on top of that you know it was um yeah i mean the other thing i've struggled with my entire life was my weight and i was incredibly self-conscious because right before i made my first record I took advantage of my 15-year-old metabolism, went on SlimFast for a summer and lost like 70 pounds. I mean, I was a fat kid. And then I well, made... The first record, you were a, right, the first couple a stick. Records, first couple records, I was skinny. <laughs> yeah, and that yeah. lasted for about two years before it started creeping up, uh-huh. you know. Um, and so I was, you know, I mean, I was a mess for a lot of that because, you know, the world, I, as I thought I understood it, you know, um, just, you know, uh, everything had changed. Yeah. And, you know, um, you know, the first, you know. How old were you when that happened? Because you go from child prodigy to just this guy it plays guitar amazing. Well, when is that? I, I had, when I was 18, when, when I was a junior in high school, I fell in love with a girl who was a senior in high school. And she was going off to University of California, Berkeley. And, I I remember going on the road and I had never had the feeling of not wanting to be on the road before. Hmm. It was the first time I'd ever like been like, wow, I wish I could get home. Huh. And I was also sort of seeing, you know, I was seeing myself get locked into some things. I've, you know, I always had a weird relationship with, um, you know, like if I if I I always if I perceived that people liked some part of what I was doing too much, I didn't want to keep doing that. Huh? You know, I um, which later on manifested in itself itself as me shooting myself in the foot repeatedly. Mm-hmm. But you know, um, and so I decided that hey, I was going to apply to UC Berkeley and I was going to go out to California the next year. You know, so when I was about eighteen, I actually graduated high school. Early, so I graduated. Yeah, you know, I took too many classes the first half of senior year. Graduated in January. From January through September, or through you know late August of 1997, you know, I was on the road. Um, you know, it would it was weird to me if I was coming up, uh, you know, if I was coming up on a period of two weeks when I was not on the road. And wow. back then, not being on the road meant <clears throat> I was at least playing Friday and Saturday. Locally or regionally, right? Because that's right. the way that's, that's where our schedules do. used to that's look. That's what you do, you yeah. know. Um, and uh, so then I went out to California, um, and I had a massive nervous breakdown uh, following the breakup of that relationship. Um, and I went home, and it took a while to rebuild myself. You know, I did a, f- a few more years. I went back on the road, did a few more years of that couple more years of that and that's when the shooting myself in the foot started because i started writing songs that were not blues in any stretch and not in the way that is generally acceptable to blues audiences it wasn't like i started writing soul tunes or it wasn't like i started writing hendrixy rock tunes right i was writing songs that sounded like elvis costello and the beatles and you know right, right. um i think that's a course of a lot of artists a lot of great artists that that right how old are you 
I, I was 19, 19 at this point. You're, you, you've got this thing down pat by that time, so you feel, and, and you had that thing in you that, like, oh, you think this is really great? Well, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah, right, exactly. It's that thing you do, and then all of a sudden you're like, well, I also like the Beatles, and I also like this stuff, yeah. and this is part of me, too. And so it kind of starts coming out of you. I don't, yeah, I no, think and, that it's a course of like events as, as an artist. I think it's a course of an artist. It, it did, but, uh, you know, um, I was, I, you know, I mean, I was also convinced I was Dylan at Newport or something. Like I had something important <laughs> to offer the world, and you know, the reality of the thing is that people liked what I did because of the way I played blues guitar. Yeah. You know? right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after a few years of that, I had to take a break, mm-hmm. and I went to, uh, yeah, you know, I produced a record for Brian Templeton. I went to Berkeley home. School of Music. Yeah, home. Yeah. That's one of my favorite things record. I've done. Yeah. It's totally unavailable. Uh, I have a copy of it. But if, if, you know, if anyone, you know, if anyone, you know, hit me up through my website and I'll try to figure out a way to send you those files. Yeah. Uh, because record. it's too good. Um, but, um, the, uh, but so, so I decided I was going to go to Berkeley School of Music. Be, sort of fill in some gaps. I wasn't really playing many gigs. When I did do sideman gigs, I was kind of uncomfortable doing it because I'd always been a frontman. I mean, I'd, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, early on, I'd backed up a bunch of people in sort of, you know, you know, uh, like I used to, yeah, you know, I used to do situations where I'd play a few songs behind Daryl Newlish or a few songs, you know, but it was always a few songs. You know, at that House of Blues opening, I played three songs with Junior Wells. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but that doesn't. Who's that? But yeah, <laughs> I should I should note that the band I should note the band that Nick and I had was called the Hoodoo Men, and we started yeah. out by playing Junior Wells Hoodoo Man Blues record in its entirety. That's what we did for like a year. Um, we did that with every every Sunday. We played that whole record from front to back for a, for a year straight. Oh, well, it's cool. better than anything we were going to come up. Yeah, you're right. You know, <laughs> doesn't matter. You know, um, the um, but uh, you know, so how long are you at Berkeley? I was at Berkeley for two semesters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Berkeley students very often describe their experience in terms of number of semesters. The, yes, they do. The, uh, <laughs> not as far as like, you well, know. Well, at least teaches there now. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, so, so you know the story. <laughs> I know all about it. So the first semester. I've I, been there five semesters. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, are, are you teaching in the vocal department? No, nope, I am in the ensemble department. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. I bet you're good at that. About, yeah, I am good at that. Um, the, um. I love it. Yeah, no, that's, I, I, I can see you working very well at yes. that. So the first semester I went to Berkeley, I thought it was one of the greatest things I'd ever done in my life. I was a hundred percent in. I lo- was learning all of this stuff that was mind expanding. And, um, and then at the beginning of the second semester, I got two phone calls, one of which was from David Maxwell to go play with James Cotton. And the other one was from Mudcat Ward to go play with Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones. <laughs> and about halfway through the first gig with James Cotton, I realized that, you know, okay, this means something. That I did a Blue Tones gig or two. And I wasn't, it took me a while to, to really get the hang of being a Blue Tone. But, um, and then I went back to school and I realized that, you know, with the classes I have and just sort of the, you know, like I can put very little into this and I can get decent grades, but it is a waste of everyone's time and money. Mm-hmm. Also, if I'm on stage with James Cotton and I'm thinking about, you know, 
scale patterns. You know, <laughs> that, that, not that, not that it changed the way I played in that situation, but just, you know, if I'm distracted by that stuff, right. that right. doesn't really honor the gig the way I want to be. What's right, your focus? Right. Right. Yeah. So, so I could have, um, you know, I could have been, um, I could have continued along both paths, but so I stopped going to Berkeley when I, Mike Ledbetter. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hi, Mike Ledbetter. Um, you know, I stopped going to Berkeley because I realized, hey, wait a minute, what I'm really good at is playing blues guitar. Yeah. And it took me from, that was the first time that I'd really been able to come to terms with that. And that's about when I met you, I think. Yeah. Right. It was, uh, probably. <clears throat> Somewhere in that. Um, I, yeah, no, it, it, and it was a process of a few years. Like I was, I joined the Blue Tones in 2001. Um, and I was in there for a couple of years. We made one record, which I'm proud of. It was, I actually wrote five songs on that thing because, you know, it was like, I get to write songs that Sugar's going to sing. Oh my God. And it was just like, you know, Hey, I've got, you know, I've got some songs, Shug. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never done that again, you know, yeah, for yeah, a Blue yeah. Tones record. I've had one or two songs on other records, but. Um, you know, uh, and then I left in probably about 2003. Um, it took forever for that first record I made with them to come out, sat in the can for a long time, felt like it wasn't really going anywhere. And I kind of felt like I had unfinished business doing my own thing. And, um, that's definitely right around when that, we started. That, that, that I feel, period is when we started. That is when I feel out. like, you know, and I was, you know, I mean, uh, I was all over the place back then. Cause yeah. I remember, I remember, you know, when you made that decision to do that, you right. made the decision to leave the blue tones and you made that decision to put your own thing together. I, re- I distinctly remember those. And, periods. you know, I listened to the next record I made on my own and it's all over the place. It's like 100% ADD all the time. <laughs> you a know. lot going on in that record. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm proud of a lot of the things on that, but. I love Joaquin. That's my favorite. Well, no, no, I'm talking about the, that's, uh, I'm, this is the record I made with Ephraim and Pat Chrisman and Barry Anderson. Oh. That was, yeah. And. What is that? Adding Insight to Injury, which is the best name I've ever come up with for a record. <laughs> um, and those guys, you know, those guys were, you know, giving a hundred percent at, but my songs were fucking weird back then, you know, and, and, you know, I was not, I was not comfortable. I was just never comfortable on stage. Like I remember doing a bunch of gigs with you back then where I felt like there were times where it wasn't until much later that I start felt I ever played well with you. Well, we had, you know, um, yeah, I, I, well, I, I, I was, I was so excited just to get you on the gigs, right? That it, you know, I, I knew early on playing with you that some of the stuff that I tend to do is not, it's not your wheelhouse. It's not right. where you like to sit. Right. You know, we do a lot of jump stuff, right? And a lot of that West Coastier kind of thing, right? But I, I also, I you, mean, I also felt like I wasn't as present as I should have been. Huh. Um. I do remember the first time, the very first gig that we ever did together, uh, set a tone for a little while, it, it, and it, and it, it, it left us, it left us at this point for, and I'm like putting like a, right. like a, a hierarchy. Uh, and you said to me, 
because I have one of those the fifty five sh mic, and you said uh, you, took, you, you said that, you took that way harsher than I meant. You said <laughs> you said oh one of those pretentious mics, and I went oh yeah, uh, and, and that <laughs> oh. that that was, and I know now I know now just, it's just meant in it's just meant in jest, but I right. felt judged. Right, and, I did feel judged. And that for, was and that was a dick mo- dick move on my part that <laughs> you know I you know. That's not how I would start that conversation now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think I evolved. I think I evolved too, and I think I gained your respect as a musician because I could probably see when we started playing where I wouldn't be as a desirable as a dude to play with. You know, I know that I have over the course of the last decade. Oh have well, there's, there's grown there's, a lot. There's no question um, about that, but. What I'm talking about is my own stuff, my own baggage that I brought to the table had very little to do. It almost didn't matter who I was playing. Oh, right. right. You right. Emotionally, you're talking about right. like, yeah, right, right. like nothing I, you're playing. I, at right. the time, I wasn't playing that great. You know, hmm. like my playing was scattered. I was, you know, um, and the thing that started bringing things into, well, the first thing that brought things into focus was having a kid. Yeah. yeah. That was yep. the first thing where it's like, you know, okay, stuff's gotten real. Yep. You know, um, and then I did a tour of France where I was contacted by this label Dixie Frog who said, you ever thought about just making a straight up blues record? You know, and at the time, like, I felt like I was beating my head against the wall doing all this other stuff. And, and I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And I put together a band that was Warren Grant, who had been the drummer in the Monster Mike band for yep. eight years at that point. Um, Nick Moss. Uh, Anthony and Mudcat from Anthony Jirasi on Nick Moss on second guitar, yep. Anthony Jirasi on piano, and Mudcat Ward. Both of those guys are from the Blue Tones. Yeah, yeah. And that was one of those things where, you know, I wanted a second guitar player on the record, and it was, you know, what we really need is someone like Nick Moss, because you know a lot of the guys, <laughs> a lot of the guys around here, like you know, if I if I had called in Ronnie Earl or Duke Robillard to be the guitar player on the record, it turns into a special guest record. Yeah. yeah what right. I wanted was someone who was consummate. Yeah. I didn't have to worry about their approach to things. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I could, you know, if I wanted them to take all the solos, they could, but mm-hmm. you know, but it was yours. It, but uh, and it turned out that the three days I'd booked in the studio. Uh, Nick didn't have gigs and was in Boston area for two of them. Perfect. And it was just like, I, I pretty much just had to pay hotel rooms for his whole band, which, you know, you know, it wasn't, wasn't that bad. And it worked out. And we did that record live in the studio. I was singing right out in the room. We did it in six oh, hours. That's great. Oh, which record shit. is that? There's a record called Cry and Hey. Um, it sold very well for me over in Europe. Um, it never really got U.S. distribution, but you can you can get it uh, you can get it on iTunes. It's available. I have a copy. Yeah. No, and I <laughs> and that's the record. That's still the okay. record that I would hand to people. And say, yeah, that, that's what I do. Yeah, I'm a better yeah. guitar player now than I was then, but as far as concept, you know, it's like that was when everything came back into focus, and you know, um, then you know, Sugar Ray called me to do. They were doing this record, which was. Uh, half of half of it was kind of a big band swing record with Duke Robillard playing guitar, and he also wanted to do some stripped down blues stuff. He was like, you know, Paul Size had left the guitar chair in that band, and was that Sweet know, and Swinging? Uh, no, that was My Life, My Friends, My Music. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and 
it's less listed as Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones. The cover is one of those like posters, you know, the sort of uh, orange sherbet, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's Sugar Ray and Blue Tones, My Life, My Friends, My Music, and it lists the Blue Tones as Anthony, Mudcat, and Goovin with special guests, Duke Robillard, Monster Mike Welch, you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. all the horn players that were on it. Um, And then I noticed that I started being called for all the Blue Tones gigs. I was like, huh, I think I'm doing all the Blue Tones gigs. Huh, yeah, I, I remember think, this. I think I'm in the blue tones again. <laughs> but I, because of everything I'd been through, you know, I feel like that's when I started being a good player. And what year was that? I have no idea. 2007, 2008 is when, is when it's just like, okay, yes, this is me. This is what I do. It's when you accepted who you really are. And I feel like over the past, you know, over the past two or three years, you know, um, you know, I'm, um, you know, I'm so much more comfortable with what I do. I know what I bring to the table. I'm also, I also know what I don't bring to the table. Mm. And, you know, um, you know, like there are better guys than me at playing jump blues. There are better guys than me at playing certain things. Um, there are times where I'm a little sloppy, times where I'm in, a little inconsistent. You know, if you want guys who play 100% in tune and in time, hmm. You know, uh, but if you want a guy who's going to go up there and try to break your heart, yeah. So you know, that's that's kind <laughs> of it's like that's what I do. Yeah. You know, yeah. and as the guitar player in the Blue Tones, and you know that it's also filtered into playing with other people. Um, you know, um, I feel like I'm pretty comfortable. Like I'm, I you know, Mike Welch, the guitar player, and I are pretty okay with each other. Yeah, right that's now. great. Yeah, yeah. You that's know what great. I mean? Yeah. yeah, I do know what you mean. Um, I get that. Well, one of the things that I really love is I know that every every consecutive record you've done with the Blue Tones, you've said to me, "This is like the best thing I've ever done." Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the next, so it's great that you have that. You feel that it's becoming a better thing, yeah. you know, like it's having a progression. Yeah. You know, and the other thing is, I really noticed too, in around that time, whatever that was, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. I got better, right? <laughs> well, I really. I really had started having a connection with you on stage. Right. You know, I felt like we would get on stage and it would be like, fuck. Uh, because wow, this is heavy, man. And, that, and that's because... I feel, like you, I feel like you're saying something to me right now. Right. You know? And, that's, and I'm hearing it. You know what I'm saying? that's one of the so, things that... That's one of the things... I mean, you know, that comes... You know, I mean, I suppose I should preface the Blue Tones thing. You know, I've played with members of the Blue Tones on and off since I was 13. Mm-hmm. Mm. The first professional Monster Mike Welch band had Mudcat and Goovin in it. Um, Couldn't get a good, a good rhythm section, huh? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Poor, uh, thing. Yeah. Poor thing. Poor kid. <laughs> um, but, you know, the thing, once I became... The thing about that band is it's a five-way conversation. And that's been the thing, you know... You know, when we went out and we played... Uh, a couple of years ago, the Simi Valley Festival that Randy Chortkoff used to put together. And it was like, you know, player for player, we weren't necessarily the best guys on that festival. Every player, like, you know, the harmonica player that sat in with most of the bands was Kim Wilson. <laughs> Anson was there. Kid Anderson was there. Um, you know, uh, Fred Kaplan, Jimmy Bott, Willie Campbell. Yeah, you know, yeah, these yeah. were the guys <laughs> on the festival. Um, so, like, player for player, we weren't 
necessarily the best guys there. We were the, the only, best ensemble. <laughs> we were the only ones that had a band that had been playing together for 40 years. Yeah. 40 years. And I'm the new guy in the band and I've been playing with those guys on and off for 23 years. So <laughs> where are you at now? What are you doing right now? I'm in the Blue Tones. Um, <laughs> I'm in the Blue Tones. I'm also, you know, um, I've been really lucky. I've had a bunch of other stuff um, before... Uh, Past few years have been great. Uh, the, before Randy Chorkoff passed away, he and I made a connection. And I started doing a lot more uh, with the West Coast guys. I played on a couple records by the Manish Boys, or one Manish Boys record, and one Sugar Ray Rayford record. Yeah. Um, cool. And that was great because there were guys I'd only ever sort of known in passing or known by reputation, you know. Um, and they became sort of part of the family at that point. Wow, that's great. Um, nice. You know. Um, and it also, you know, I mean, uh, being in New England, your scope can be somewhat li- limited to other New England people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. if, if you start, you know, just for the blues guitar thing, if you start thinking that, well, basically, you know, it's Ronnie and Duke and, you know, those are, if those are the guys you see, they're like, you start, you can start thinking, well, those are the guys out there who are really playing it. But then mm-hmm. you start hanging out with Kirk Fletcher and Kid Ramos mm-hmm. and Kid Anderson. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, obviously Nick Moss in yeah. Chicago. Yeah, I got and it's all like, those guys records. It's like there's there's a whole community. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the other thing that came with all of this um, sort of growth was, um, you know, uh, when did Sean Costello pass away? That had to have been like 2007, 2008. Something right like around there, yeah. So I was on the road when... Um, he passed and I heard, I didn't know any of the backstory of it, but I just heard that he passed and that hit me like a ton of bricks because I didn't expect my generation to be dying. Mm. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, he's, he was a month older than I am mm-hmm. or, you know, wow. um, and he and I didn't get along that well. We met through Susan Tedeschi. Um, we had a very difficult session, you know, cause I mean, I'm sure everywhere he went, he heard my name. And he was weird and 17 years old. And everywhere I went, you know, uh, I heard yeah. his name and I was weird and 17 years right. old. Because for those people that don't know, you recorded that whole record with those guys and then most of it was cut No, out. no, 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 no. I did not. I recorded 50 takes of Rock Me Right. Oh, okay. 50 takes. <laughs> and they ended up using an earlier one that Sean had played. Oh, okay. Um, so that but the it big was, breakout record that it was she the, did. The, it's, yeah, my picture's on the liner notes. You're right. Um, me and Susan and Sean. <laughs> But so Sean and I were always kind of standoffish with each other. And then I would start hearing things of his. Like he did a, um, and first of all, you know, he and I were both huge Otis Rush guys and I would start hearing things of his that sounded like that. And then I heard he did a version of, uh, Dylan's Simple Twist of Fate, which is just gorgeous. And I, you know, this is the age of MySpace social media, not Facebook social media. And I kept mend- meaning to, you know, just shoot him a line and say, hey, Sean, you know, I heard this and I just want to say it's, it's, you know, you're kicking ass. And mm. I never sent that. Mm. And then he died. Mm. And one of the things that I realized I then had to do was, you know, um, you know, I had to get over myself. And if people were doing things out there that were good, even in a way like Sean, where sometimes the, you were doing were good, but I felt they were in, infringing on what I thought was my territory, and I got uptight about them. Mm-hmm. It's like the way to do that is not to get uptight. Mm-hmm. 
the way to do that is to connect with people. Mm-hmm. Well, I can tell you, and I know that you know this because it's mm-hmm. your life, but you did that with Nick Curran. Cause I, I did. Cause I, cause we had a lot of conversations about and him before the Nick two of you hung out together. Nick used to bother me. Well, you and I had a lot of conversations about that yeah. because I was a, right from the get go. Right. He just hit me right in the gut and I went, this dude is a fucking. Right. He's I had to get comfortable with and the fact that I will never rock as hard as Nick Current. <laughs> and once I became comfortable with that, but I had to fight through that. I had uh, to want to fight through that. And you did. And, and you I made did. a connection with him and you guys. And then it turns out that, you know, he used, you know, his dad worked at, uh, Morgan Fields in Portland, Maine, and he used to be the busboy when I used to play there. And his dad gave him my demo tape from back then where I did Leftovers <laughs> by Albert Collins. That's awesome. And he, and he was like, yeah, I used to listen to that all the time. That's great. That's and crazy. here I am, uh, you cool. know, intimidated by the dude. Right. You know? Uh. <laughs> and it's just like, you know what? I'm not going to let that stuff go. You know, I'm not going to, yeah. you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, um, you know, it's one of the reasons, you know, like, uh, you know, I've become close with Kirk Fletcher. You know, I always, um, these days it's easier, you know, um, with Facebook, you can, you know, if Nick Moss or Mike Ledbetter or Kirk or Josh Smith or any of these guys out there, if they post something totally badass, I make sure I let them know that's totally badass. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, um, as opposed to being weird about it. Right. You know, or awkward or insecure, you right. know. Um, and I'm still weird and awkward and insecure, but I'm also a dude who loves music. I really wish I could just sit down with Sean and geek out about Otis Rush records. <laughs> Whether or not he liked what I did, I don't care anymore. Right. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Whether or not we had an awkward experience, you know. Right. Um You know, and... Uh, awkward or not, it's an experience. Like, I, you know, um you know, David Maxwell passed away last year, and he and I had just about the closest thing I've ever had to a real falling out. But... We worked it out, and we were playing together, and we, yeah. you know, I'm eternally grateful that um, when he passed away, it wasn't a giant, sore, raw, open nerve, uh, you know, yeah, nerve yeah. ending out there in the world. Right. Because I don't want that shit anymore. Right. No, it's you good know? to get that stuff No, you're growing, up. you're evolving, it's awesome. Uh, well, you know, I mean, uh, you know, 36 years old, you know, I've I've had an evolving relationship with adulthood in the past <laughs> ten years or so. You know, haven't we all? Yeah, evolving yeah. or revolving? Yeah. Revolving. That's what it feels. Like I've had a revolving. Mine's I'm like a little revolving. I'm like, yeah, I'm like twelve and I'm forty, and I'm twelve and I'm forty. Like and I'm planets, planets orbiting. You know, there's me and there's adulthood. Yeah, and you know we're we're lined up, and there's an eclipse. And yeah, that's right. What's the year? What's the year? It comes. Uh, um. Well, this yeah. has been an awesome yeah, podcast. Been awesome podcast. Yeah, yeah. Thank a, you, Mike. And I'm I'm sure I've gone sharing. way over whatever. No, Good. listen, this has been great, man. I feel like it was so effortless. It was just yeah, great. there was this was the this was the least effort. It was just a natural conversation. It was a really good one. I would yeah, love no, to have you come up here and like, do this again. It's like again. pulling teeth getting Karen to speak about anything, isn't it? 
No, it wasn't. Not, no, not no, that, no, it was, that was not a joke. That was not, that it was, was a joke. It was, it was. It was really easy with her too. I just uh, no, you know. it was effortless in the sense that you just you were just so easy about sharing this experience right. of being a child well, prodigy. And that was. I mean, that that was. You know, I talked to Jeanette about that. That was a deliberate decision on my part. Good. I'm glad because it's it's a thing. Yeah. Being a child prodigy and growing up in this industry and turning out as well as you have, you know, it's it's a really good story. I'm glad we got to. uh Air some yeah, of thanks it. for having me, guys. Yeah, thank you. It's been very it's much. been great getting to hang out with you, Lisa. I mean, yeah, obviously, like, Nick and I have been very close for a long time. You know, Nick's one of the best friends I've ever had, mm. and um, he's a good kid, that Nick. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's been you. my pleasure. I appreciate yeah, that. I pleasure. love you guys both. And uh, ridiculous Nicholas podcast over and out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>